this episode is not an opinion on coronavirus. It's a philosophy of coronavirus. It's very lofty. Very stupid. <laughs> you know, we don't always need philosophies of this and that. Sometimes we need some people to make some decisions. You know, that's why politicians are important. That's why uh, debate is important, you know, because it's the way our politics works anyway. On debate. Uh, yeah, but I'm not in politics. Um, so I can sit back and, uh, and, and try a philosophy of coronavirus. It doesn't add anything. And it doesn't come to any conclusions and it doesn't get any decisions made. You know? But uh, what else am I going to do? You know, watch Spongebob episodes. So, you know, that's what I'm doing. In fact, this whole podcast is like that. There's no opinions to be had. Um, there, uh, there, there really is just, a, it's just waffling, you know, the whole podcast. What are, I wonder how many hours I've spoken so far. A thousand? All wasted. Pointless. Yeah. So should I stop? Well, of course I should. Am I going to? Well, no. Right. Now, um, so this is a philosophy of coronavirus. Now, to warm myself up, um, my wife, oh, uh, well, she gives me a lot of my ideas, you see. You don't think I'm an original, do you? And uh, the ones she gave me this morning, I get a lot of my ideas from other people. In fact, I think I get all my ideas from other people. I doubt that I've ever had an original idea, and I'm not just saying that. It is really hard to have an original idea, you know, like you, as you're there, sitting there, listening. Have you ever had an original idea? And if you have, think about that original idea and um, just think for a moment, is it truly original or did I get that from somewhere? You know, somewhere in my upbringing, you know? Am I entirely socially constructed? Um, and intellectually constructed and philosophically uh, constructed. You know, have I ever had an original idea? Now, I think some people have had original ideas. I'm pretty sure Einstein, you know, E equals MC squared and all that, you know. um, uh, You know, uh, Nobel Prize for, you know, one sort of relativity and then the other and all that sort of stuff. Um, You know, they might have been original ideas, but I think even he might have said, except I think, I'm not sure that he did, I think it was Newton who said this, but it applies to all physicists. Um, I stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, so even Einstein was saying, listen, no, no, what happened was there were geniuses that came before me and I was surrounded by geniuses and they were all feeding ideas to me and all I did was uh, build the jigsaw puzzle and and then saw the picture that came at the end. Yeah, look, I, I look... There may have been an element of originality in what Einstein came up. He may have made a quantum leap. Um, But I think uh, those moments are rare. And you need, you know, these are the geniuses of history that do this sort of thing. You know, like little Richard, when um, he was making the song Lucille. And he said, everybody on the same beat. No backbeat, just boom, boom, boom. You know, and right there, rock was born, you know. Um, uh, you know, what we now know as rock, as distinct from rock and roll. You know. Einstein, Little Richard, but anybody else, I'm not sure. 
you know. Um, yeah. Even the, the great feminists of the past, you know, have, have, they, um, have they stood on the shoulders of Enlightenment thinkers, you know, mostly male, as it turns out. But then have those Enlightenment thinkers, have they been at home listening to their wives speak and then put two and two together from what their wives have said? Yeah, maybe not in that case, you know, because... Uh, but, um, you know, like the great civil rights, you know, African-American civil rights leaders of history, the ones who are credited um, with, you know, Martin Luther King and all those guys, and even ones further back before him, um, yeah, well, excuse me, a loud car, um, you know, are these guys, you know, uh, what's the other one, um, Mandela, you know, are these guys, um, are they the originators of civil rights? Are they the, are they the people who have taught the West to mend their evil ways? It's evil ways, you know. Um, is the anti, is anti-racism and anti-slavery and all that, that whole movement, you know, is that is that Westerners finally coming to their senses and, you know, let's say African slaves, you know, having said, we told you this a long time ago, you've finally come to your senses. We've been trying to get this through to your, in your thick skulls and finally you've seen the light, you know. Um, or is it the case, and I'm not, you know, this is a philosophy of this and that, this episode, so I'm not coming up with an answer here, but is it the fact, is it, does it happen to be the fact that, you know, anti-racism, anti-slavery, all those sorts of things, did that originate in Europe? And, and, and then, um, let's say, for example, the African-Americans first uh, caught on and said, that's a good idea, and then ran with it, you know, um, so were the great African-American civil rights... You know, would those guys have never... Would never have become civil rights persons... Persons had, you know, people like John Wesley and what's his name, you know, the, the you know, all those Methodist um, people with ideas of um, anti-slavery and all that sort of thing. Back in England, for example, what was the other one? I've forgotten his name. Uh, very famous. Um... You know, were they the guys that had that original idea? And then the African-Americans who, had, you know, back in Africa before they'd even become slaves in America, you know, had been part of a, you know, had been engaged in slave systems for the last 3,000 years. And um, slavery was the most normal thing in the world for them. And, you know, far from being against slavery in their long history, these Africans, they were for it, all for it, and they just saw it as a natural order of things. And if you were a slave, you know, your aim was not to get rid of slavery as an institution in Africa, in history. It was, was it not, to not be the slave yourself, but become the master yourself and make the other, the other tribe the slave. You know, was that the aim? You know, were there any anti... Was there anti-slavery in Africa... Um, before, you know, John Wesley and all these guys proposed it as an idea, or were peoples in Africa all for slavery, um, but with the, with the, with the, um, except that 
they, um, they, if they did happen to find themselves becoming slaves, they said, this is no good. Um, what we need to do is become the masters. But we still want the institution of slavery, but we want to become the masters, and we'll make those other guys who have been our masters slaves, slaves, you know. Um, you know so you had this in ancient Egypt, for example. In ancient Egypt, you had slaves. You know, the whole... Look, most civilizations in history were built on slavery, and, um, and, and there were certain things that had to come into play industrial revolutions, all these sorts of things, perhaps, um, to make, make it possible to get rid of it, you know. Um, in, you know, it's not just enlightenment. There's all sorts of factors that come into play. Um, you know, it hasn't... The, the fact that we haven't got worldwide slavery now isn't because we just saw the light, you know. Uh, we, we developed economic systems that allowed us to be wealthy or to survive anyway, um, without needing slaves and all this sort of stuff. But the Enlightenment, you know, um, worked hand in hand with that. It's a complex formula, but the point is um, the great African-American civil rights leaders, for example, were they standing on the shoulders of anti-slavery and, you know, anti-racist, for example, um, giants... Um, back in England and France and even Germany and all these sorts of places, you know, back in the European Enlightenment and the Scottish Enlightenment and the English Enlightenment, and I'm not sure if there was an Irish Enlightenment. Unfortunately, I'm Irish, so I always miss out. Right. Um, that's what I'm getting at. And, and then, you know, once you step back in time on that, and this is how philosophy works, I think... You know, because I'm not actually giving you an opinion here. Maybe, um, maybe we did need Martin Luther King and Mandela at at the time that we needed those guys. Um, that's a bit circular, but you know what I mean. Um, and I think we did. You know, um, because even though we did have the very few in European culture who said, "Listen, we shouldn't be doing this stuff," the very many were still pretty keen on it, on continuing the racism and continuing the slavery and all that sort of stuff, you know, either explicitly or implicitly and all that sort of stuff, right? So maybe we needed, once the very few in Europe had taught the African-Americans, for example, the idea of running for civil rights and not being slaves anymore, you know, if that is the case, that that is what happened, um... You know, we needed those African-Americans to stand up and make grand speeches and, you know, do grand things like, you know, sit in jail for ages like Mandela did um, and become, you know, iconic um, to push us to the next level. But I think we also needed economic factors to, you know, because we're selfish deep down and we want to live off the slaves' back. We still do, and I mean every race, colour and creed in the world, you know. If we lose our means of economic um, industrialization, all that sort of stuff, if we lose the means to that, somehow, you know, the internet crashes, we lose electricity, all that sort of stuff, you know, world goes into chaos and all that sort of stuff after some huge virus or something. Um, if we lose the means of production, we, you may find us slipping back into slavery sort of systems. Um, and, and, uh, and that's the way it goes, you know. Um, and people will, you know, even, even 
left-leaning people will suddenly say, oh, geez, I need my toilet roll, so, all right, I'll agree to slavery again because, you know, there are special circumstances here at play. So I'll suspend what I used to say were um, fundamental and um, universal rights, you know. We'll suspend that. We'll go back to slavery. All right, we'll go back to slavery. And then you go back to that situation where, all right, it's, it's not a question of whether you should have slavery or not. It's whether you want to be the slave or not. I won't get into that whole Marxist thing where, you know, the means of production are still a form of slavery to this day, you know, because under that sort of definition, I'm a slave right now and I really don't feel like I'm having a good life. I don't feel like I'm a slave and I'm, I'm having a wonderful life. So if this is slavery, as Marx sort of suggested it was, you know, and I am a slave, then okay, I can handle that. I'm not complaining. You know, so I might as well just... I'm just going to forget about that whole line of thinking because if I'm a very happy slave, then I don't care. I don't want to end slavery. You know, if the means of production in my current society are such that I am a slave and don't know it. You know, that's what Marx was trying to tell me, I think. But I'm happy to ignore him. You may call me naive, but I'm happy to ignore him. But okay, so that's all that, you know, and then, you know, like I'm... But then maybe I'm giving too much credit to... um, John Wesley and Wilberforce. He was another one. That was the one I was trying to think of before. Uh, you know, these great anti-slavery kind of um, leaders uh, of the English Enlightenment and Scottish Enlightenment um, and French and all that sort of stuff. You know, the French, the European Enlightenment was bigger. Enlightenment was bigger than the English Enlightenment. But anyway, put that aside. Wilberforce happened to be English. Um, yeah, but these guys, you know. Uh, did they have the original idea? Or maybe they were standing on the shoulders of giants too. Yeah, we'll get to coronavirus eventually. Uh, I, take, I take my time in these episodes. Now, maybe they were standing on the shoulders of giants too. You know, giants like Jesus. You know, who you can, you know, in his words in the Bible, whether he existed or not, you can read into those words. Um... There's, you know, certain ideas of egalitarianism and brotherhood of man and all that sort of stuff, you know, and all that sort of thing, you know. Um, liberté. You can read it in there. You can read other things in there. You can, you can read Stone the Gaze too, you know. You can read whatever you want, but you can read that good stuff in there. You know, and there have been, you know, and there are other sort of, you know, it's, it's when Europe went round the world, they would have picked up, sort of ideas around there, like Indigenous Australians, you know. So, oh, wow, you know. They've got a society there that doesn't rely on slavery and that gives you ideas, you know. So were we standing on the shoulders of giants like um, the Indigenous Australians and all the other peoples of the world, we Europeans, and once we got around the world at that same time, you know, when Wilberforce and Wesley and all that were, you know, kicking around, you know, were we grabbing ideas from them? Well, we would have been. We're not idiots, you know, and did we stand on the giants of people even further back in time in our own culture? You know, because it was a kind of um, Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian culture we were living in in Australia. Sorry, in England and all that sort of stuff, um, and Europe generally. Um, you know, there were messages from Jesus, but there were messages from others. You know, there was another guy. You know, Cyrus the Great, you know, and all the Greek and Roman philosophers too. In the Greek, well, 
now Roman philosophers. Um, I saw um, a picture, a meme my daughter sent me. She sends me stuff because she knows what I'm into. This is you, Scarlet. And she sent me a picture of a kid um, with a cat. And she laid the cat, it was alive, you know, and a bit confused, laid the cat on a piece of paper and had drawn the outline of the cat on the piece of paper, holding the cat down, this child, you know, and drawn on the cat was uh, the words, were the words, um, Greek mythology, you know. And then she let the cat go free after she finished drawing the outline of the cat. And then on the piece of paper, you know, you only had the outline of a cat and she's written Roman mythology. That was just a joke on the the side, but it's not what I'm talking about. But all right, Greek um, mythology, um, philosophy, you know, like um, the, you know, were, was Wilberforce and Wesley and all those other guys, were they standing on the shoulders of giants themselves like all these guys, you know, the Greek philosophers um, and Greek mythology itself? But even the great leaders of the past, there was another one, Cyrus the Great of you know, Persia. Um, and, you know, he's very famous. The only Messiah besides Jesus, you know. If you sit in church and mass, you often hear in the readings, um, yeah, talk in the Bible of this Messiah, Cyrus the Great. He let all the slaves go, and a lot of the slaves at that time were Jews. You know, did we pick up some ideas from him? Quite likely, we knew our history. You know, so you're standing on the shoulders of giants, and all those guys are from the Middle East and Persia and all that stuff. You know, not even Westerners. You know, we're picking up ideas from non-Westerners there, you know. You say, aha, you know, and this is what a lot of people on Facebook and all that sort of stuff. Cyrus the Great, you know, was responsible for everything then. The Persians started the Western world. Yeah, and obviously you ignore such rubbish because it's just ridiculous. You know, but, you know, he becomes a, you know, he becomes one piece of the huge jigsaw that goes into... um, how we got to where we are in the world today, you know, which you might arguably say is a mess. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you know, who cares what it is, you know? This is how we got here. You know, where did the original thought start? And uh, it's hard to say, you know, it's like a worldwide movement, really, isn't it? We're all just one big organism, we humans, and maybe we got some ideas off the monkeys too. Uh, we definitely, I think, got the idea of royalty from the monkeys, you know, monarchies. Um, there's a lot of people in the world that say, oh, we've been a monarchy for thousands of years, you know, Japan or and Ethiopia always springs to mind, you know, um, because they've, I think they've got one of the oldest monarchies, although that's been knocked off now, so they don't count either. But, you know, you get these grand um, monarchies, you know, royal lines and all that sort of stuff. And uh, people take great pride in that. And the houses of Europe, you know, uh, go back and back and back, you know. And they say, and people take pride in that. And they say, you know, we have been kings. You know, you, you see a lot of memes from African-Americans, for example, say, we come from kings, you see. Uh, but then, you know, you sort of say, well, you know, that system, the system of royalty, you know, where you've got a, um, you know, a kind of a clan and then a, a boss at the top, you know, a divine rule boss. And, you know, that, that looks suspiciously like the same system that, you know, chimpanzee clans have. 
you know, and it's not that sophisticated. In fact, it's primitive, you know, stop, you know, I wouldn't be taking so much, you know, I'd be hiding the fact that you were kings. Yeah, because, you know, uh, there are a lot of people saying, we are now, you know, we are downtrodden now in um, Africa, you know. Uh, sorry, in, um, in, um, in yeah, African-Americans are downtrodden in America, racism, slavery and all that sort of stuff. But we were once kings. And you kind of say, so what? So you once had a primitive system, you know. Like back in ancient Rome, um, ancient Rome had no kings and that's what made them more advanced compared to all the places that they conquered you know and the ancient romans you know dedicated them their themselves to the idea of not having a king because that's what set them apart from all these primitives around them you know they used to conquer lands and they used to when they conquered those lands they wanted to keep them primitive those lands and so they would allow them to keep their kings you know, but they become client kings, you know, they become client kings. And they, you know, they go to somewhere like the Jews, you know, and they'd say, oh, you've got kings, have you? Well, we think you should continue that, you know, that way you won't become a threat to us. Because, you know, a primitive system, like a royal system, you know, would, uh, will, will never um, be uh, better than our system. Look, that logic was flawed in the end because Rome was fallible in the end and it fell. <laughs> Did you like that? It was a little, little joke there. Um, uh, but the, the logic was good. It just didn't work, that's all. Um, but, you know, this idea of, um, you know, and, and a lot of our ideas might have come from Rome too. In fact, they did. You know, anti-slavery. Look, the Romans loved slavery. But the point is there was freedom amongst the elite in Rome and that freedom has now been applied worldwide um, so even though, look, in ancient Greece, um, there was democracy. Now, obviously, only demo- there was democracy only amongst the elite. You know, they all got to vote and all that sort of stuff. And there was heaps of slaves and everything, but it was still democracy um, for the very few. But what you do is you grab that, um, that small sample size of the population, the elite of ancient Greece, and you note that they had a certain kind of liberty, freedom, um, liberal sort of they were liberals you know um the way we are today in the western world and i'm talking about um you know liberal party which is our conservatives in australia or labor which is our other side or um the democrats in america or the republicans in america they're all liberals all liberals, but I've discussed that. You know, you know, people say, "Oh, the conservatives in America, you know, the 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 Republicans are not liberals, but they are." You, you just got to get into the definition of what liberal means. You know, what's not liberal is what we had before the French Revolution. You know, primitive royal systems, all that sort of stuff. You know, that's what's not liberal. Both sides of politics in America are liberals. Doesn't matter if you're conservative or non or progressive, you know, which is proven in Australia because the conservative side of politics in Australia are called the Liberals. You know, and the progressive side of apparently progressive side of Americans America American politics is called liberals. You know, what's in a word? Liberal is both sides of politics, left and right. We're all liberals in the modern world. Um now, um What's not liberal is just going back to King Louis, the, you know, the Sun King. Okay. Um, 
So that's that. Uh, but, you know, all these ideas, they all go into the mix and we end up with um, whatever we end up with, you know. And what I was actually, you know, I love digressing, as you know, as I just have. But what we end up with is, you know, we do have good ideas in the world and... Oh, sorry. And... Um, and, yeah, but you wonder if anyone's ever had an original idea or if we are just at one great big movement that started, you know, if we are one big organism and, and that all just, that all started, you know, when we were single-celled organisms and we've been moving forward since then, you know, and even when we were chimpanzees, well, the ancestors of, you know, ancestor great apes, wherever we came from, whether some of these ideas were forming even back then, and we are all standing on the shoulders of giants that look suspiciously like great apes. <laughs> I lost track of that whole episode there so far, um, but that doesn't matter. I don't mind digressing. In fact, I quite like it. I haven't even started talking about coronavirus yet, have I? But yes, this is how I started this, um, this episode. Um, I got an idea from my wife. I'm standing on the shoulders of my wife. I often do, and of other people too. I don't have many original ideas. And, you know, without further ado, I've got myself back on track on, in this episode. Now, when I do stand on the shoulders of my wife, number one, it hurts a little bit, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't hurt me. And that pervades a lot of the thinking uh, that I notice in the world at the moment with this coronavirus well, there's no risk to me. I'm not one of the 4% people who are going to die, so um, I don't mind if it hurts somebody else. I'm still going to the football. <laughs> uh, that wasn't a very good, uh, uh, you know, link. <laughs> but anyway, the idea, what, what was the idea that my wife gave to me this morning? Oh, it was last night, actually. She said, oh, no, yeah, last night. She said, um, it's funny, um, she said, with the uh, recent bushfires in Australia, um, there was an outpouring of community spirit, you know. The best of humanity came out. And um, with the current coronavirus, there's less of that. You know, it's dog-eat-dog a lot more. Um, so, you know, during the bushfires, we got this idea of ourselves that we are the sorts of, you know, we are the sort of country that when your mates are in trouble, we all look out for each other, you know. And she said... But it's a funny thing because um, with the bushfires, we did do that. You know, $50 million raised by some sort of half-brainless um, YouTube sensation. You know what I mean? And said, oh, you know, she did a funny dance and said, um, please give money to the bushfires. Um, help out your mates, you know. And $50 million, $50 million was donated to Les Barber, you know. Uh, she didn't think it through at all. You know, but it doesn't matter. The community spirit was there. Yeah, albeit, you know. Not a bad, not a great way to raise $50 million because none of that money's been able to be pushed across to the people who needed it. Uh, it's all locked up in the courts now because she, she uh, stuffed it up, you know. She asked everyone to give to a body that wasn't able to give the money across by law, you know. But anyway, look, forget about all that. It's not about that. The point is community spirit was strong and we got this idea of ourselves, we Australians. We're mates. Um, but she said, but the funny thing is, 
it's only because we ourselves, the people who were helping our mates, the ones who were able to lend a helping hand weren't at any risk themselves. They were sitting pretty, they were safe, they were comfortable, you know. And, um, and she was saying, you know, you can be really, um, you can be very compassionate and a wonderful person and all that sort of stuff when you are not in the firing line yourself, you know, when you're, when you're not in danger. And she said, with this coronavirus, we're, in da- we're all in danger, especially people with, um, who are sick and who have elderly people in their families. We are in the firing line and suddenly we're not quite so generous to our fellow man, you know. So um, our generosity, you know, our sense of mateship was contingent on, you know, you can be generous when you're comfortable yourself. And I've had some examples of that, you know. You know I, I know some compassionate people um, who are, you know, who are wealthy um, and um, they make, they do wonderful things for people from a position of impregnability themselves. You know, they're, they're quite, they're not at any risk themselves. They're not in danger in any way. And once they have sorted themselves out and they're comfortable and all that sort of stuff and they're safe, you know, then they're hugely generous. They, and they are. And it is absolute selflessness and I'm not picking on, the, on them. I think they're wonderful. You know, but you know, if if um if they and then you know and they're not even inconvenienced, you know, they might be flying around the world, like you know, they might be a Meryl Streep or a Paul McCartney type, you know, and they're flying around the world, um, and staying in luxury and all that sort of stuff, and yes, ha- hooking together and hanging with Africans and all this sort of stuff, you know, uh, that's the that's the trope, you know, to mention the Africans in a time like this. Yeah, because they do go looking for Africans, especially uh, the the people they help. Often, you know, they want to get they want to have selfies with people who just look African. That's the best one. You know, the more African, and you know, they you might um, have an African with an iPhone standing next to his Subaru. You know, and these people say, oh, "I want to get a selfie with you," but can you put your iPhone down? on the front seat of your Subaru and see this mud hut over here. You can just stand in front of that and we'll stand in front of that together and we'll get a selfie. You know, that sort of thing. Um, look, they're good people because they are... They do pump money into people who need it, you know. But they're, they're being generous from a position of comfort. You know, a lot of these people, they're... Um, they you, look. What I'm saying is, someone like Meryl Streep or Paul McCartney. If you inconvenience them, so, them in a slight way, if, yeah, on in a way that is not on their, their terms. If you impose an inconvenience on them, you know, and tell them that they're not allowed to do this or that. You know, for example, if you tell them, um, if you fly into Australia, you will when you land, you will be quarantined for 14 days, and you can't move, and you have no choice in it. Suddenly, suddenly, um, the softness goes out of their face and they get furious. I will not be inconvenienced by you. I decide when I'm inconvenienced. I'm in control. You're not in control. I'm in control. And then once I'm comfortable, then I will be generous. But you will not tell me what to do. But those people are being told what to do now, and um, I know a couple, and they're not happy about it. These are the people that were that are usually 
the the great the most beautiful people the greatest compassionates the saints the secular saints of my world um, who are normally filled with a spirit of philanthropy philanthropy um, uh, that's um, love of humans isn't it anthro anthropology philo you know I love um, now um, and who will do anything for anyone but from a position where no one is telling them what to do you know they have all the power you know um, now if you even inconvenience themselves them slightly but they're not they have no control over that. Someone's telling them what to do, you know. Um, even if you say, listen, you know, um, you, you um, have to stay in your house and not move out of your house. Now, they might do that by choice ordinarily, but it, that's their own choice. But God help you if you tell them to do that and they will start to lash out. And that's what we're seeing at the moment, you know. So my wife was kind of saying that with the bushfires, that mateship was contingent on um, people just looking about themselves, saying, listen, if I'm nice here and give a little bit of money to Celeste Barber, the YouTube sensation who dances funny dances, I'm actually not going to be significantly significantly inconvenienced here. I'm still going to be able to buy toilet paper and... Um, I'm still going to be able to buy milk and I'm still going to be able to go to the football so I'm not inconvenienced. Okay, I'll do that because I look after my mates. Yeah, because I've got Australian mateship. Yeah, but if something comes along soon after that like a coronavirus that's going to inconvenience me and I'm asked to make all sorts of sacrifices like for example to isolate myself willing no if i if i'm asked to isolate myself as if the coronavirus would kill me if i got it and i'm talking about people who can't who really realistically can't be killed by coronavirus so if you say to someone right now in australia i want you to act as if coronavirus is going to kill you personally in order for you not to become a carrier and then go and kill someone else. You know, um, you know that person. It's not going to kind of for a lot of people. It's not going to compute. They're going to say, "Yeah, but why would I? I'm not going to inconvenience myself to that extreme level." You know, s- people who might die should inconvenience themselves themselves to that level uh, because they might die if they catch it. But why would I? You know, and you might say, because you are the ones who are becoming the carriers. It's not the elderly and the sick who are travelling around the world and all that sort of stuff. It's you. You know, it's, it, realistically, it's only been... It, every old person who dies in Australia, very elderly or very sick person, uh, they haven't been responsible for that coronavirus coming into Australia. It's, broadly speaking, young people, any, anyone under about 60, you know, um, who have been globetrotting. they're the people who've been uh, spreading it about the world Um, and um, and so it's kind of the the case that healthy people and I mean anyone when I say young I mean anyone under 60 um, or even 65 you know or even you know under 70 as long as you're healthy you know these are the people that move around the world and 
um, and have been spreading it around. They're the super spreaders. So the people who are the super spreaders, you know, are the ones who are killing the ones who aren't in general. You know, you're gonna, you know I'm not on Facebook, so I don't have to agree that if someone finds one example that is counter to what I'm saying, then that knocks down my point. It doesn't. I'm talking about the rule, not the exception. That's how Facebook works, you know. Someone comes up with an example of one elderly sick person who did travel from Italy to Australia and then died here and said, see, you're wrong. And I say, no, I'm not wrong. That's the exception to the rule. The exception doesn't make the rule. Yes, it does. When, it's, when you're on Facebook, it does, you know, they'll say. Um, I only have to have one example. And as long as I make the meme huge and get a million uh, likes and a thousand sh- and half a million shares, then... My point is proven. I said, no, it isn't, you know, because you're on Facebook and, you know, you only get, you're getting liked and shared by idiots. You know, um, brains is not a democracy. If you get a million hits, that doesn't mean you're smart. It just means you know a million stupid people, potentially, you know. Um, but, you know, it's like that, you know. Mateship, all that sort of stuff, community spirit, are we good people? Well, something like the bushfire doesn't test that. But something like this coronavirus perhaps does, you know. And elderly and sick people are sort of saying to healthy people, listen, can you, um, can you act as if um, it is the case that you will be killed if you catch coronavirus, even though we know you won't? Can you act as if that is the case? And if you do, we'll all be all right. And if everyone had have done that from the start, we would have shut our borders on day one, as soon as we discovered the virus in Wuhan province in China, and uh, coronavirus wouldn't have even got into Australia. That's the argument, anyway. That's one argument, you know. And without further ado, uh, that's not a bad introduction to this episode. Quite long, longer than the rest of the episode, probably. You know, because I come back in time and I add little bits of audio to the start of episodes. The bit that's coming up is pre recorded. On with that. If I can find the off button, and here it is. There are many ways to discuss a thing. By that I mean anything. You can discuss the comedy of a thing. I find that the hardest one. You can discuss... The science of a thing. You can have an opinion of a thing. And you can discuss the philosophy of a thing. Um, And there'd be others that I can't even think of right now. Uh, You can discuss the fact of a thing, the truth of a thing. You can throw words at this, you know. But um, yeah, the comedy of a thing is the hardest thing, I think. Uh, but this episode is about uh, the philosophy of a certain thing. Uh, being coronavirus. Now, it's not very much the comedy of that thing. But, you know... When you discuss the philosophy of a thing like coronavirus, some comedy of that thing might come out of that. 
and some science of that thing might come out of that and maybe an opinion or two will slip through too Um, possibly the fact of the thing some of the facts of the thing might come out and the truth of the thing might come out of a discussion on the philosophy of of a thing Um, but the point is the dominant purpose you know that's a that's my wife's sort of language that um, dominant purpose she took something all the way to the high court once and um and had a law changed along with her colleagues um something to do with dominant purpose i never did understand that it was privileged information and i was not (laughs) allowed to understand it because i did not have sufficient brains now um but the dominant purpose of, of this episode is not to have an opinion of a thing or even to have any comedy of a thing like coronavirus, because that'd be just plain uh, insensitive. Oh, I'm never far away from the comedy of a thing if it jumps out at me. But the the dominant purpose of this thing, and it definitely isn't to have an opinion of a thing like coronavirus. God knows there's enough opinions about uh, coronavirus going around. Uh, to keep everybody happy. No, uh, (laughs) the dominant purpose of this episode is to have a philosophy of this thing called coronavirus. Now, the only danger, I suppose, is when, for example, you're having a comedy of a thing, that people take you seriously. Uh, (laughs) Most comedians would find that very annoying. I would think, yeah, and I and I suppose there's just as much danger of um, someone uh, while I'm having a philosophy of this thing called coronavirus, uh, reckoning I'm having an opinion of this thing called coronavirus. You know, opinions on this thing. You know, which which gets tiresome. In fact, this entire podcast, I'm up to about episode 170 or something, I don't really have any opinions. It really is all philosophy, the way I speak. You know, I don't have opinions. I just, you know, roll ideas around in my head. But, you know, people who are locked into opinion-style thinking... Well, they're going to be assuming you're having an opinion, no matter what you're doing. You know, you might be just putting on a comedy show, and all you want is a laugh. And they'll say, oh, you're having an opinion there. No, no, just looking for a laugh. You know, two bucks at the door, that's all I'm looking for. Yeah, but um, look... If you if you're putting on a comedy show, then as long as you get the two bucks at the door, you don't really care. But you do want a bit of applause, yeah. Um, but essentially, I think you're putting on a comedy show, and you're not having an opinion as such. Well, put it this way: if I was putting on a comedy show, and I had to, uh, you know, and I had to bend. Um, I had to go against what my actual opinion on a certain topic 
was in order to get a laugh, I'd, I would do that. I'd go against, you know, I would express an idea that was against my own opinion because all I care about is a laugh. So you've got to be careful with comedians. I'm not a comedian, but if I was a comedian, you'd have to be careful with me because I might say something counter to my actual real opinion in order to get a laugh. Because that's the name of the game when you're at the comedy festival. If I've, let's say, look, the comedy festival is full of a hell of a lot of lefties as far as I can see. But if I got up there and I was a lefty, which I am, and if I loved to swear and talk about vulgar topics all the time, which I do, and I um, was fifth comedian up on the bill um, and the previous four people had been as vulgar as anything cause, because comedians seem to think that that's the way to go these days. They just talk about their, you know, private parts all the time, really, and try to be as gross and vulgar as possible and they think that's funny and they swear a hell of a lot, you know, and attack Donald Trump. But at the same time... They abuse my senses by just swearing and all this sort of stuff, you know. Now, I'm up fifth on the bill. What am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to give the crowd more of the same. I'm just like all those guys, the previous four. I'm going to go the opposite. I'm going to not swear at all. Yeah, pretty much as has been the case for this entire uh, podcast of 170 episodes at about an hour each, which is a hell of a lot of talking. Um, and I'm going to say I love Donald Trump, even though I hate him, because I'm looking for a laugh. You know what I'd get? Boo! <laughs> Doesn't matter. You know what I'm getting at. This is not about all that. This is not about comedy. comedy. Um, I'm talking about philosophy now. Now, as, as I... <coughs> excuse me. Not coronavirus, um, peanut. Stuck in my throat. Um, uh, This is a philosophy of coronavirus. Uh, You know, but if you want to read it as an opinion, go ahead. You're probably one of those people who goes to a comedy show and you think that that comedian is uh, deadly serious about everything he or she is saying. Well, that's, you know, if that's your bag, go to your comedy show. And waste your two dollars and sit there like a grump. (laughs) Okay, on with this show, which is a philosophy of coronavirus. Millennials frustrated because they're... um, What are we called again? I've actually forgotten. Hang on. Oh, boomers. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. I really did forget just then. Oh, dear. Um, anyway, I saw a headline. Uh, millennials frustrated because they're silly boomer grandparents. Parents in some cases. Insist on still mingling. I presume a bingo or church. I only saw the headline. I didn't read the article. I tend to not read articles. 
well, how can you have an opinion if you uh, don't read the article? Well, I'm having an opinion about the headline. <laughs> That's all. Anyway, um, and uh, this episode is not about, I mean, this podcast as a whole is not about opinions, you know. It's, uh, if anything, um, sometimes I think this might be the philosophy of, uh, of, of just looking around and seeing what you make of everything. And if this is a mini-series on coronavirus right now, which is what it is, all of a sudden I didn't plan it that way. Um, yeah, this little series of episodes I'm doing at the moment is a series, a mini-series on coronavirus. Then this would be something like a philosophy of coronavirus. You can have a philosophy of anything. I, I was listening to a philosophy podcast recently. I've never really known what philosophy is. Uh, I always thought it was something like, um, you know, where even like it's it's a little bit like a husband and wife arguing about something, you know, with passion, or at least the woman, you know, in in my case, for example, um, getting all passionate about something. Um, you know, maybe maybe the husband um, doesn't love her enough, or something like that. I'm not talking about my case specifically. Obviously, I'm perfect, but I've always thought philosophy might be something like this. You know, uh, a wife gets all upset because the man's not showing enough love, and you know, and then um, and then the philosopher, you know, the philosophy of love, you know, would be, well, wife, let us analyze your terms first because we really can't have this discussion until we define our terms yeah and then she whacks him with a frying pan you know and 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 you know i think to a certain extent i've always thought philosophy is a bit like that where you detach and lose um all passion and flavor and all that sort of thing and you get all logical you know um, I think logic is still there in philosophy, um, but uh, I've been listening to philosophy podcasts recently, and it seems to be the case that philosophy doesn't only doesn't confine itself to only intellectual analysis, but also emotional analysis and spiritual and everything. Philosophy takes in the law. You know, philosophy is, appears to be all things considered, which is interesting to me because I always thought it was something like, you know, passionless people detached um, and trying to analyse everything intellectually. And I think it goes further than that from what I'm listening to. Um, and, uh, you know, there are philosophers that are passionately... Um, passionate about all sorts of things, you know, animal rights, LGBT, everything, you know, and um, even um, emotion. I think philosophers um, do want to um, make sense of, you know, some sort of sense, make sense of everything in the world, and not just intellectually, but also emotionally, spiritually, everything. So that's interesting. Uh, and without further ado, I've forgotten what I was talking about. Coronavirus, wasn't it? This is a mini-series on coronavirus, so let me get myself back into that space. Uh, coronavirus. So I was talking about... Oh, yeah, this mini-series could be about... Yeah, this mini-series could be called 
the philosophy of coronavirus. But what was I talking about at the start? Um, no, I can't remember. I'll, I'll go and listen to the first 10 seconds, then I'll know what train I was on, and then I'll come back and say a little bit more. Uh, I need to find the off button first. Here it is. That's right, millennials frustrated um, because their boomer elders are not taking coronavirus seriously enough and are insisting on going to bingo and church, something like that, you know. That was the headline. That was what was inferred by the headline. I didn't read the article. Okay, so um, now, that's a funny thing. Now. Uh, because, uh, in my experience at the moment, millennials couldn't give a hoot. <laughs> yeah, and this is only my own experience from all the you know, older people and uh, that I know, and um, all the millennials I know. Um, my experience, you know, which is obviously not the experience of whoever was writing that article, uh, my experience is that older people are frightened, properly frightened. And millennials are going about their business as per normal, more or less. Now, I've, I've heard a few millennials, um, and the millennials who don't have sick people in their family and all that sort of stuff, and older people in their families, uh, the ones I've heard, and that's not much of a sample size, the ones I've heard are saying this is absolutely over the top. The world's gone mad. This is ridiculous. You know, I've heard a lot of that, you know. And you know, this is ridiculous. The you know closing the schools, shutting down the whole world. Yeah, you know, this is an over-the-top response. And um, I, I think a little bit behind their thinking is that coronavirus is really only going to kill a very few people anyway, and not them. Um, now, a philosophy of coronavirus, for example, would need to consider all things, all things considered. So I have to now, given that I've seen that headline, consider that there are some, some people who are having an experience that is different than mine. There's at least one millennial out there, whoever wrote that article, at a bet and at a guess. Yeah, come on. It's not going to be the older person writing that article, is it? Um, there's at least one person out there who has an experience where the millennials are the responsible ones in the world, and it's the dottery, silly old people that refuse to change their behaviours to properly um, to properly show due respect to this thing called coronavirus. Um, the millennials are the wise ones, and. Um, the boomers and older are the idiots. You know, well, they're, they're the fools. You know, and need to be guided by the wise millennials. All right, that may be that millennials, you know, apostrophe yes, uh, experience. Now, my experience is the opposite. The boomers and older are going to extreme lengths to avoid coronavirus, and the millennials are putting the older people in danger by refusing to change their ways. That's my experience. But if this miniseries is a philosophy of coronavirus, and I think it is now that I think about it, then 
um, I have to I have to imagine that amongst the people I hang around with, uh, well, my elders, let's say, because it, it is the people older than me who are at risk. Uh, you know, I'm j- I'm I think I'm the youngest possible boomer. I was born in 1963, and I'm pretty sure that's the cutoff. Uh, so I'm the youngest possible boomer, apparently. So, and I'm not at risk really from this coronavirus, but. Um, the philosophy of coronavirus is from where I sit when I compare my, let's say, extended family and this other person's extended family, this millennial who has written this thing, and I'm just going to assume it's a millennial, um, is such that my family is smart. The elders in my family are smart and the elders in her family are dumb. That's the only thing I can take away from that philosophy-wise at the moment. So what the article headline really is saying, uh, my parents and grandparents are stupid. Yeah, that's, that's all I can take away from that headline. You know, she's advertising the fact that the older people that she knows are stupid, you know. Whereas I would write an article uh, that would have a headline something like, um, boomers beg millennials to pull their heads in and go into isolation, please. Because you're putting us all at risk. We know, this would be a long headline, wouldn't it? We know that you're not going to get killed by coronavirus, but please, can you behave as if you're going to be killed by coronavirus in order to save the people you know who are older? and who will die of coronavirus if you keep risking becoming carriers, you you millennials. Now, I think I've considered both sides there, you know. Um, Well, I'm being a smart ass, aren't I? (laughs) But what that millennial is saying, my elders are dumb. (laughs) And what I'm saying is my elders are smart. Um, Now, this reflects well on me, you see. (laughs) because this, this little episode is suddenly just going to uh, find a way to make myself smart. Right, if my elders are smart. I got cut off at the critical moment there by an incoming phone call uh, yeah, on the same device into which I speak this podcast, which cuts off my podcast. Right, yeah, what I was saying is... Um, in a smart as Irish sort of way, what, I, what I'm getting to and at with this uh, episode is that um, that millennial has stupid elders, and given that those elders have had her <laughs> as a descendant, um, she won't have uh, avoided that stupidity altogether, would she, or he? And given that I've got smart elders, you know, on balance, I'm likely to be a little bit smarter than that person who wrote that other heading. Yeah, my heading was written by a person, you know, my fictitious imaginary heading was written by a smarter sort of bloke than, uh, than was that other heading. Uh, was that enough sophistry for you? enough bullshit anyway, okay. I may end up saying something else, I don't know. Oh, by the way, we've um, pulled our kids out of school. 
even before the government has announced that. And there's a good reason for that. Because we're not idiots. And that's that. Oh, because the government has banned gatherings of people more, you know, greater than 500. There has been a government edict, you know, no more mass gatherings of people, of more than 500 people, you know. Um, But they've also issued an edict that schools to remain open. Well, here's the funny thing. There are more than 500 kids in each, in, in all the schools I know. Why would you? So we've got two, um, and we've got, um, the government has given us two edicts. Now, we have to break one of them. We don't have a choice. Uh, so we've decided to break the second one and keep our kids home from school. But in doing that, you know, that's a wrong thing to do. And it's over the top. You're being over the top, Charlie, in doing that. You know, boy, you know, honestly, get some perspective. Well, I do have some perspective, you know. Whether I was thinking about, whether I was thinking about our own self-interest in our family, because we do have some people at risk, or, um, or whether I had um, a, a sense of responsibility for the community at large, and I want to get the rate of spread down so that thousands of people don't die. Either way, whether I was being selfish or selfless, um, it's the right thing to do to keep my kids home from school, even though the school, it's the two schools involved, have not closed. Um, it's the right thing for me to do, and my wife, of course. Um, because, and, and we know this because the government has handed down an edict that there should be no more gatherings of 500 or more. You know, they were thinking sports events, but... Uh, there's more than 500 kids in each of the two schools at which my children are at. Now, I can say a lot for my uh, sense of logic, but I can't say much for my grammar. Uh, End of that segment. There'll probably be more later. I suggested before, earlier, that I've had a long-held prejudice against philosophers, in which I, in my mind, have been accusing them of being detached, somewhat, or a lot. Uh, And I wonder where they get that reputation. Um, If I am correct these days uh, in thinking that uh, they they do get involved in matters of passion and emotion and activism. There's another one. Spirituality. Everything. Philosophers are all things considered. And um, a thought I had just now was that maybe they do come across more detached simply because they are less excitable. Potentially, possibly. And an example I thought with respect to that, an example I thought of just now, I will tell you in a minute because I'm about to pick my daughter up from school and that's as much talking as I can do right now. Thank you.
Okay, I'm back, and where was I? Picking up a daughter from school. How can this be? When we've kept our kids home from school because of coronavirus. Well, I'll read a... Uh, look, it's only, we only made the decision... We made the decision only yesterday to keep our kids home from school. And uh, the best way to describe what's going on here is, uh, number one, to note that I think all schools will be closed within a day or two anyway, maybe three. Um, but I texted my um, cousin in England around, about all this, and my text went like this, and it describes why I've ended up with one child at school. The other two we've kept home today. All three will be home by tomorrow or the next day or something like that. Okay, I think ScoMo over here is doing the wisest things doable. Uh, I think my cousin is a bit, uh, you know, he he thinks it's a bit silly. England's going with the herd um, theory, you know, give it to everybody, Uh, which, you know, which is a risk, which may pay off, and it may not. All right. Um, Now, I think what happens is, what is that herd um, theory with viruses? You give it to everyone. See, when you you make it slow moving, the virus through the community, it it keeps finding new people. Um, So it's able to refresh itself over and over again. Indefinitely, almost indefinitely, for years maybe, you know. Whereas if you absolutely, if you flood um, the virus, with everyone with the virus, you you get it, you get it um, going fast and and push it right through the community. Get everyone as many people as you can to to have it. Um, so everyone's got the virus, and then you know ninety thousand people die. Um, well, that's that's the price you pay for this system. You know, hundred thousand people die straight away. But the point is, the virus is knocked off pretty quick because it's looking around for someone else to infect and everyone's already infected. And then 14 days later, it's burnt itself out because even the infected people have either died or got over it. Yeah, that's the herd system as far as I know. Um, But you need to speak to a microbiologist to get that explained to you better. Um, I haven't even read up on it, you know, but that's just my comprehension of what it probably means. But anyway, um, we aren't doing that here in Australia. They're, they're doing that in the UK. Um, and I, I texted my cousin. Um, yeah, look, if, if you're in a family where you've got lots of people at risk, and that's my family, it's my cousin's family too, um, the herd idea <laughs> seems to suddenly not look like such a great idea uh, because you're going to die. You know, but... Um, you know, look, people are selfish. We're selfish for thinking that because the herd uh, theory might work better for society overall. You know, we should sacrifice ourselves um, a little bit like the Spartans at Thermopylae um, were happy to suicide for the greater good. You know, and if you're a member of the greater good, I think a lot of people who are in the majority, you know, who aren't who wouldn't be harmed, who aren't being harmed, um, maybe not so explicitly, but implicitly, 
are pretty much saying, well, that's, you know, only 4%, only 3% of people are going to be affected. We shouldn't be going so overboard. We're only talking the very few, you know, and this is that whole philosophy of should you inconvenience the very, very many, all right, um, to save the very, very few, you know, or should you save the very, very few and inconvenience the very, very many, and you almost need to do a formula on it, you know, total, um, total, uh, inconvenience to the very, very few is, you know, 100,000 people times a, um, times a, uh, a consequence of a hundred, you know, give it a rating of a hundred if you die, you know, dying is a hundred. So, you know, that's a, um, a, an inconvenience rating of a hundred thousand times a hundred, you know, a hundred percent bad badness, you know, 100% badness, and, and, you know, that's an inconvenience rating of a million. Yeah, I know, it's 10 million, uh, but it doesn't matter for the, for the point I'm making, you yeah. But then, what you do, in a country like, you know, Australia, you say, alright, that's 100,000 people, but we've got, you know, 25, remember, that's an inconvenience rating of a million. Uh, balanced against that, against that, you've got 25 million people um, and give them all an inconvenience rating of 10, you know, which is not death, but you know, a bit of a slight cough and all that sort of stuff, but you give it to everyone. And, um, and the inconvenience rating there is 20, what did I say? 25 million times death. Is it two, a, an inconvenience rating of 250 million? Whereas... 100,000 people dying is an inconvenience rating of only a million. So, you know, and I think people, just by their attitudes, um, are kind of voting to sacrifice the very, very few so that we don't have to be inconvenienced. These are the people who are saying Australia is already going over the top. You know, whereas myself, you know, given I know a few people who are going to die, um... I would say, to hell with you, you know. Uh, I want you to be inconvenienced. I want you to miss your football and all that sort of stuff. All that's over the top. Yes, I know. But um, uh, um, I see where you're coming from, I might say, you know. That's a lot of people inconvenienced. You know, and a very, only a very few people dying. And I know the mathematics, and yet I still want you to be inconvenienced. And they might say to me, you're being selfish by refusing to die. Well, not you yourself, but your family members, you know. Kill your own family members so that we can go to the football. Just do the maths and be reasonable. Yeah. Now, people aren't being that brutal because they can't, they don't know the names of the people who are dying, so they're not saying it in that brutal a way. Uh, but by their actions, that's the maths, that's the formula. That is the mathematics that they're doing, you know. When they say, oh, it's closing down the schools, that's utterly stupid. Um, you know, stopping the horse racing, horse racing. Honestly, over the top. Actually, I had one the other day. Um, someone was coming from overseas. It was only yesterday. Um, and was outraged that he 
was um, going to be quarantined for 14 days. Ridiculous, that person said, you know. And on one level, he's probably right, you know. Um, He is coming from England where there's not that many cases anyway. It makes no sense, he says. And yet, we're going to quarantine or we're going to quarantine him. And if he breaks quarantine, we're going to slap a $13,000 fine on him and, if you, and, and possibly a jail, t- jail term. And that person will be shaking his head saying, I do not believe how ridiculous... You know, and that person's a doctor, by the way, believe it or not, and knows about medicine. Um, so you can't tell him, you know, because he's more expert than you. But really deep down, he's, what, the mathematics of what he is doing... He is saying, I don't want to be inconvenienced. I'm willing to risk death for others so that I um, don't have to even be um, interrupted whatsoever in you know, what I want to do. You know? And that person actually wants to come back to Australia and quickly take off to, I think it's South America. You know? That's the plan for that person. But that he's... His travel plans have been ruined by people like, you know, people in my family who are adamant that that 14-day quarantine rule should be in place. Um, That person who wants to, you know, flit about and fly about from continent to continent, you know, um, is being inconvenienced by people who I know who are selfish you know, selfishly not wanting to die you know and you know that, that sounds like I'm um, sticking the boot in there but the other person has got a point you know it is selfish to not be willing to die for her uh, oh sorry this was this other this doctor his wish to um um have absolute freedom of movement and not be inconvenienced at all, you know. And, and, you know, the ancient Spartans proved that, you know, if this person was a citizen of Athens back at the time of Thermopylae, um, this person would have said, I think it's good that the Spartans commit suicide to save Athens, you know, if this person was an Athenian. This person, he would be an Athenian philosopher and he would say, I think the Spartans are doing a a good thing mathematically and philosophically um, to commit suicide. You know, this is only the very few committing suicide. Only 300. Yeah. So that we Athenians may not be inconvenienced. Well, actually, in that case, the Athenians might have met certain death as well. (laughs) That's <laughs> not a good example. No, this one really is that case, isn't it? It's um, it, it would be you know if you were searching for an analogy, it would have it would be this that these um, ancient Spartans would have committed suicide. The three hundred at Thermopylae, gates of fire, um, pillars of fire, uh, hot gates, <laughs> hot pillars, um that the 300 would die. What we've got here in Australia at the moment is that the very many sitting in Athens, you know, in Australia, uh, represented by, you know, the young and healthy, 
are asking the very few, you know, the 300, um, to do battle with the Persians under the, you know, the coronavirus uh, and die, you know, certain death, uh, at least X number of them certain death, so that um, we Athenians... Um, Australians in general, the healthy and the young, the Athenians of old are represented by the healthy and the young today, so that we Athenians are not protected from death, not protected from death, as was the case in ancient Greece, or, you know, it wasn't called Greece then, but, you know, the ancient world of the Hellenes, um, not so much that, um, uh, the, the, uh, not for the reason, you know, you're committing suicide, you Spartans, represented by the old people and the, fra- and the old elderly and the um, sick, um, you are risking certain death so that we Athenians, so to speak, uh, uh, can go to the football. Yeah, something like that. All right, more later. Okay, I'm back, and before I distracted myself, yes, I was about to um, uh, to solve the puzzle of how can one of my daughters be at school if we've kept our children home from school? Well, one of them we had to let go just for t- let go to school just for today, and the reason for that is summarised in a sort of text I sent to my cousin in England. Um, and it goes like this. You know, I think ScoMo over here is doing the wisest thing doable. Um, look, medical advice is such that if we closed all the schools at once, uh, we'd be short of staff in the hospitals. Uh, whereas, uh, yeah, that's one side of the medical advice uh, that we're getting. That's some doctors, other doctors are saying close them anyway because people are going to die if you don't. Um, but both of those sets of doctors are telling me, given the, you know, uh, that I should keep my kids home and from school, but, you know, I accept that the school should be kept open. Uh, what they're really saying is that the schools should be kept open for children of parents who have, who are working in the emergency services, but everyone else, you know, go home. Um, But then that's like um, emergency services workers, you know, nurses, doctors, police, and all that sort of stuff, ambos. um, It's almost like they're doing a double sacrifice then, isn't it? Uh, Because number one, they're working in the hospitals and all that sort of thing and putting themselves at risk. And number two, they're letting, you know, they're being forced to send their children to school and expose themselves to risk and their own grandparents and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's cruel. Someone's got to hurt. Someone's got to hurt. Right, and I, I've texted, but, you know, be that as it may, we've decided to bring our kids home from school, except for one of them just for one day, maybe, maybe two days, I'm not sure. And the reason for that is as follows. It's kind of ended up, I text, that people who haven't got someone in their houses who are likely to die are sending their kids to school 
and people like us are keeping them home with one slight twist. Scarlet is a maniac. Scarlet's my daughter, but I'm using a false name. Scarlet is a maniac in a Hermione way. So, yeah, because she's... um, So, against our better judgment and avoiding her melting down that her classmates, open brackets, meaning her arch-rivals, close brackets, might steal an inch of advantage over her, we've let her go to school today, reviewing this arrangement each night. But we are playing the odds and keeping Helena and Alex home, reducing our chances of catchy-catchy by maybe a half, or something like that. Uh, because we've got the boy in one school and the girls in the other school. Okay, more later. And we're back uh, to this episode, which is now very much a philosophy of coronavirus. And I should I should do straight philosophy episodes more often. Not with a bayonet through your neck, <laughs> would, would say my wife. <laughs> but um, that's a quote from Black Adderac. Um, now, um, what was I talking about? Uh, the, uh, uh, it's a little bit disconnected, this episode, because I'm just speaking little grabs as I run errands. But I know I've talked about a few things. Now, the philosophy of coronavirus. Now, when you make an episode like this, it's not similar, not similar, I think, to an opinion you might read. Again, it happens. All right, interrupted again. But um, I thought of another idea. Uh, you know, sorry, another philosophy of coronavirus. I just imagined to myself, and it's along the same themes that I've been speaking about so far, I think. Um, I just thought, imagine this. Um, someone infects somebody deliberately. That could happen. That could happen. Um, that'll probably be at some stage, yeah, the world's a big place, and somewhere around the world, someone's going to do that. Some psychopath. Um, or some people are arguing that China did that in the first place. And China is saying that the US did that to them in the first place. You know, so it's not a crazy idea. I didn't come up with a crazy idea just then. There's, um, there are plenty of people coming up with that one with respect to. Uh, the uh, coronavirus starting in the first place but I'm just imagining just an ordinary psychopath in our community um, all um, deciding, you know, having coronavirus and then going up to someone and just giving it to that other person and um, and how that, look, how that would look in the news. Now, I did mention before that um, Philosophers, I think, do get a reputation for acting a little bit detached. 
lacking passion. And I think it's in a situation like this that uh, they might earn that reputation for being a little bit detached if they've got it. Yeah, I actually think um, philosophers can be the most empathetic, um, connected, um, uh, spiritual, loving, emotional people around. Um, but I do think they still have a certain um, lack of shock, shall we say, and outrage in their reactions to things they see around them. And I think that's because they've already thought them through. You know, like, take this idea that I've just mentioned where someone infects, let's say, a whole street or a whole suburb with coronavirus deliberately, intentionally. Now, the newspapers and a lot of the people at, in Australia at large, they, will, they wouldn't have seen that coming. They would have gone, oh, my God, you know. Um, and it would be a huge headline and it would be, you know, virus shock. And people would be going, oh, my God, I can't believe that. That's so unnatural. It is, um, I can't believe that people would do that. And they'd get outraged and they'd get shocked. Now, I think philosophers, they kind of expect that sort of thing to pop up eventually um, and, and actually voice it and, and to themselves at least or amongst themselves and they say one day that's going to happen you know and, and everyone else around the table you know the philosopher's table they say yeah well won't it someone's going to do that one day and then but other people who aren't philosophers tend not to be thinking about all the possible alternatives look a lot of people do but a lot of people do. A lot of people are just natural philosophers and they're always imagining these sorts of things. That example there, you probably imagined it yourself. Um, well, there's a lot of people imagining that one for sure because China's accusing the US of doing that and the US is accusing China of doing that right, right now. So it's not unusual. Now, um, but you've got two sets of... You've got three sets of people, I think. You know, let's say tomorrow someone does that infects, you know, knowingly infects people with coronavirus. I think we had that with AIDS, some people going around. Um, I think even Freddie Mercury from the band Queen was playing fast and loose on that score, but I'm not sure. Um, can you defame the dead? Can you, the, can you defame the dead? I don't know. And um, anyway, um, Okay, so it hits the papers tomorrow. Now, that someone has infected, you know, a suburb full of people intentionally. Um, and has gone to mass, that'll do. And has given everyone a hug. And then all those people at mass have taken it all around the suburb with them. The coronavirus. Now, some people will not be surprised. Philosophers, you know, philosophers will not be surprised. And that'll hit the news tomorrow. And they'll go, yep. But they, they won't, you won't see a whole lot of passion because they've already imagined it. Uh, they've already seen it coming. And by the time it comes, they go, there it is. You know, and, and they do that with everything, philosophers, you know. Mother, um, a mother throws her children off a bridge and they say, yep, there it is every year, you know. And you sort of almost feel like accusing them of being, of lacking passion, but they may well have had deep passion, but they've already emoted 
about that already before the mother did that. You know what I mean? Um, okay, so that's that. And um, it was a bit, little bit like that baby, that young boy Aylan, or whatever his name was, the refugee who got washed up on a beach like seaweed. I had already imagined that many times during the refugee crisis. And, um, and then that baby got washed up on the beach and, um, and people freaked out. And, I'm, and I was a bit more detached. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, it's because I've already imagined it. And then someone wanted to lecture me about that, about my lack of compassion and passion. And she sent me a picture, an email with, and you know, I brought up the email on my laptop and big, large as day, this kid lying on the beach is filling my screen and I was very offended by this woman because I knew what she was doing. She was lecturing me and I was thinking, yes, but you're reacting right now. I already pictured that kid. Not that specific kid, but kids like it. In fact, even before the refugee crisis, you know, I've, I read about the crisis of the third century in the ancient Roman Empire and I was gutted by what I was reading there and you may not even know that that even happened that sort of thing, you know, that was a refugee crisis too, very similar to the current refugee crisis, you know, the current refugee crisis has Syrians flooding Europe, and in the ancient times, in the crisis of the third century, you had Germans flooding Europe, okay, I've got to go again now, oh no, I'll be right for a second, um, uh, no, I don't, Sorry, I'm just doing hand signals to somebody. And, um, yeah, and, um, you know, things that happened in the ancient world, I've sat there and I think, oh, my God, you know. And a big one, Julius Caesar, um, you know, when he, uh, that's my big one that I really sat there and imagined, when he besieged Avaricum and then slaughtered everybody. Um... You know, and I just pictured that. He killed all the babies. He killed everything. He killed the pets. You know, and then when I see something happen now, people get horrified and shocked. Shocked is the word, and outraged and amazed. Whereas, you know, and then I'm sitting there and say, hey, why aren't you shocked? Oh, I said, because, yeah, I don't like it. You know, I feel deeply. I, I don't like it. But I've already pictured it before this even happened. Yes, but you've got the photo in front of you now, they say. Yeah, I know, but... It doesn't matter if I've got the photo or not. I don't even need to see the photo. Don't show me the photo. I've already imagined it. I do not need a photo to trigger an emotional response in me. I've already thought it through. Look at the photo! And then they slam it into your face. Look, look, look. Force you to look, you know, to educate you, you know. And this is, um, but you're already educated, you know. And that's where you get a little bit offended. Um, So, as you can see, I'm taking a philosophical approach here, but... I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not being, I'm not lacking passion here, or spirituality, or caring, or humanity, or anything. I'm just saying, I've, you know, I've imagined these things in advance. And when they eventually come along, and a, a baby, de- you know, because when that kid did wash up on the beach, that, that spurred the Western world into action. Whereas I'm of the opinion, why wasn't the world, Western world in that much action before that kid got um, washed up on the beach. And the reason for that is a lack of imagination. They aren't philosophers, most people. Everyone 
who sprang into action as a consequence of that kid washing up on the beach, um, I think was almost willingly um, refusing to look at that kid until that kid was forced into their face via, via the media, you know. But look, my example, you know, and in some senses they were bad people, even though they were making a huge show of being good people because they're responding to what they've just seen. Why didn't you see it before that kid drowned? You know, do you think there weren't kids drowning before that kid? Do you think there aren't kids drowning right now in the Mediterranean? Of course there are refugees, you know, and, and no one cares about them at the moment, actually, by the way, but that's a whole other story. You know, I predicted that um, during the refugee crisis. I'm saying this is very temporary, all you people crying into your candles. Anyway, look, it's supposed to be a philosophy of um, coronavirus, but, you know, these are all analogies along the same theme. And um, with coronavirus, yes, tomorrow hits the headlines. Now, you're going to get philosopher types, and there are a lot of... You don't have to be a formal philosopher. I'm not a philosopher. You don't have to be a registered philosopher to be a philosopher, but, you know, you just have to have had enough imagination to think of all the possibilities, all things considered, you know, on an intellectual and spiritual and emotional and loving and every other level and hating, you know, um, every level. Um, And, you know, the headline... Now, the media just wants to sell papers and they know all the different types of people out there and who's going to buy the papers. They will appeal to the people who either are outraged... You know, they're the very much, very much the non-philosophers, the philosophers, or the ones who want to be outraged, you know, for good reasons or bad, you know. Um, so you've got the probably the genuine philosophers um, who would have put strategies in place even before the disaster happened to have prevented it in the first place because they've already imagined it. Then you've got these other two mobs of people, the ones who are getting outraged. Right, now... One set of those people are those who are genuinely outraged at the sight of that little baby on the beach getting washed up the refugee and they're absolutely shocked and spurred into action as a consequence of that photo because they simply were so kind of self-centered they didn't even imagine it before. Right, they're the genuine ones. They are getting shocked, you know. And if they see a headline tomorrow, someone's infected people, it will just knock them off their seats because they didn't see that one coming. Okay, there are people who don't see these things coming. Okay. But then there's this whole other batch um, who... uh, They are philosophers, really, because they have seen it. They know it happens here. They know a mother drowns her children somewhere in the world every single month. They know that. They know it's not unnatural. They know it's natural, normal has been happening forever, mothers killing their children. You know, these ancient Greek plays about it. Medea you know, killed all her children just to get back at Jason of the Argonauts, you know. That sort of thing, it's absolutely natural, it's been happening forever. Not unnatural, but you know, these people, um, they want to, um, they want to be shocked. Look, it is shocking, you know, if you see a picture, um, but do you need it? Um, well, you know, I'm not coming up with an answer to that because this is a philosophy podcast, you know, episode. Okay. But there are these groups of people saying, this is unnatural, this is against God's law and all that sort of stuff, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But I think deep down, well, not deep and deep down, 
they they were expecting it because they they saw something just as shocking last year and something just as shocking the year before and they just get regularly shocked um and I can't even analyse that <laughs> I think I might just let this episode peter out but it was basically about coronavirus this episode a philosophy of coronavirus now you could keep going uh, you know you could get on to a um, into the newspapers and read every article and dig into the philosophy behind that article you could actually get onto Facebook and take a philosophical approach and that and I don't mean small p philosophical I mean capital P philosophical um, you know on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is all the time people will be throwing opinions at each other and fighting and all that sort of stuff but you can actually do that in a philosophical way and you're not sitting on the fence you know because on Facebook or Instagram for example you've got people um, you've got people arguing this way and argue, people arguing that way and going hammer and tongs and abusing each other and all that sort of thing now a philosopher is not sitting on the fence like some arbiter some you know some passionless judge, you know, wanting to come up with a verdict between these two people fighting. Yeah. This is not a person who's opting out and sitting on the fence or anything like that. This is a person who's delving deep into both sides of the argument. That's what a philosopher does. And to a certain extent, I think that's a satisfactory way of um, looking at everything, yeah, rather than taking sides and all that sort of stuff. Now, when you don't take sides, some people say, hey, if you're not with me, you're against me. You know, but philosophers aren't. That's, you know, that's just stupid talk. You know, philosophers are actually pretty valuable people um, and they do get passionate, you know, um, and spiritual and loving and hating. Some of the cruelest and nicest people in the world are philosophers, you know, and just as good at philosophy, each of them some of the most deeply feeling people in the world are philosophers but they're looking at all sides at the same time as well as you know like there's a, one of the most famous maybe the most famous philosopher in the world not finishing with this one is a bloke from Melbourne here in Melbourne Australia and I've forgotten his name and he's one of the most important philosophers in the world um, and I'm trying to think of it and I really have forgotten but the point is he's into animal rights he has sat there and philosophised about what is a person. And he's come up with um, a conclusion for himself that all sentient animals are persons. You know, they fit the definition of a person. So if you kill them and eat them, you know, that's murder. That's the way he looks at it. Now, he's very, you know, he's leading the charge from a philosophical side of things anyway on, you know, Stopping this cruelty to animals, you know, of slaughtering and killing and eating animals. He's against that, you know. But from a philosophical perspective, not from a perspective of someone who hasn't thought it through. You can have a someone who's doing it for only, from only an emotional perspective, can't stand the, saw, the thought of little lambs being slaughtered and put on my plate. Now, because I do eat lambs, you know. I love them. And when I see lambs in a paddock... Um, Pavlov style, I start to salivate. I think, yummy. You know, I love lambs. I love sheep. I love cows. I love all the animals of the farmyard. You know, when I'm hungry. You know, 
But, um, you know, and that's from a philosophical standpoint too. Um, you know, I've considered the fact that my ancestors, um, that's how they, um, that's how I got to where I got to today, by eating meat. Anyway, look, this other guy, yeah, he, um, he has sat there and done his own philosophy, and he thinks we shouldn't eat the little lambs. And there you go, you know. So, um, and he's feeling very deeply for the animals at the same time. He has as much feeling for the animals as he has for his fellow human being, perhaps more. Especially the herbivores. And with that, I'll end this episode, because it's gone on for a long time. Just enough. <laughs>